Hi, this is Hannah Langdell, Rachel Hine, and Lily Mundy, Duke Plastic Surgery residents on The Resident Review, a Duke Plastic Surgery podcast. Today, we'll be continuing our new series called Microsurgery Masters, a discussion of topics within microsurgery with innovators in the field. We are honored to have Dr. Babak Safa and Dr. J.P. Hong discussing lower extremity reconstruction. Dr. Safa is an internationally renowned reconstructive microsurgeon and hand surgeon at the Bunky Clinic, widely considered to be the birthplace of microsurgery. He subsequently completed his residency in plastic and reconstructive surgery at Stanford, followed by a fellowship in microsurgery and hand surgery at the Bunky Clinic, where he has been on staff since 2007. He is currently the medical director of the Transgender Surgery Institute of San Francisco. Dr. Safa specializes in transgender surgery, microsurgery, and hand surgery. He also holds an MBA from the University of California, Berkeley. Dr. Safa is additionally a very talented concert pianist and professional eater. Thank you for joining us today. Dr. Hong is a professor of plastic and reconstructive surgery at Asan Medical Center. He is board certified in trauma, hand, and plastic surgery. He is an active member of a number of professional associations, such as the American Society of Plastic Surgery, World Society of Reconstructive Microsurgery, and Korean Society of Plastic Surgery. His major work has been research and clinical practice in wound healing, diabetic foot reconstruction, and microsurgery. He is on the editorial board for numerous journals, including Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery, International Wound Journal, Journal of Reconstructive Microsurgery, Journal of Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery, and more. Wow, that was a lot. (laughs) He has been invited in over 80 countries to present his work and is a visiting professor for more than 20 institutions. He has over 160 publications in this field of practice with 24 book chapters. Does this count as a visiting professor or visiting cross country? Does this count? (laughs) Additionally, both Dr. Safa and Dr. Hong were awarded the Gadina Traveling Fellowship from the 2015 American Society of Reconstructive Microsurgery. Thank you guys for being here with us today. Thank you, Rachel and Hannah and the Duke family for the invitation. And of course, catching up with Bobek is a treat anytime. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having us. Uh, thank you, Rachel and Hannah and Lily. I think it's a, it's a phenomenal uh, podcast you guys put together. And uh, I really wish I, I had this as a resident. I think my answer scores would have been a lot better. So congrats on that. Well, thank you. Thank you for being our attending advocate. <laughs> um, so we'll start with some introductory questions. Do you mind telling us just a little bit about yourself and what encompasses your practice? So how much lower extremity would you say you do? Yes. So basically, 100% of my practice is lower extremity uh, and and trunk. Uh, I would say uh, 60% is lower extremity. The rest is trunk and other parts of plastic surgery. Um, I especially like to, I mean, of course, I take care of all the spectrum of lower extremity. But I think the challenge and the fun is especially in the diabetic foot reconstruction. And nowadays, uh, a part of my practice has shifted quite a bit to lymphedema uh, surgery as well. Um, I think uh, one of my goals in practicing lower extremity is to teach residents and fellows that lower extremity isn't that much different from other parts of the body like head and neck or upper extremity. So hopefully we'll get that message across today. Um, great. So my practice is a bit different than JP's. Um, uh, majority of what I do is is in the upper extremity, um, with a very heavy emphasis on trauma. Um, so we do a lot of replants, a lot of uh, mangled hands, and so on. Um, we do a fair number of lower extremity as well, but I think 
from a percentage of practice standpoint, certainly lower than JPs. Um, and the traumas, and sorry, the lower extremity cases that we do get are exclusively trauma typically. Um, and they usually are triaged at a local hospital somewhere and then they're sent to us once the patient's been stabilized and once they've had some kind of hardware placed. And we also do a fair number of phalloplasties. Um, I'd probably say about a quarter of my practice probably is, is that, which is almost all um, radial forearm flaps and some ALTs as well. What led to some of your interest in lower extremity trauma? So it was the first day of my residency. Uh, and, and in front of me, in my eyes, lying on the table was a man in his mid forties with a complete deglobing injury of his left leg from thigh to toe. I thought I had walked into a different surgery department like ortho. I said, what, what am I doing here? I said, is this plastics? And, and obviously, you know, it took a, it took a lot of debridement and skin graft, but I saw how well the guy recovered and, and, you know, going through rehab and walking again. And I knew then that lower extremity was fascinating. And in, during my practice of residency, I also, saw, I also saw that it was also feared as being very difficult. So, and what I realized at that time in Korea that there wasn't really a lot of surgeons doing a lower extremity uh, recon. So I decided to take on that job and, you know, it's been fun. It's been exciting ever since. So that first day of my practice, I think was a, a decision-making moment for me. Um, I think I my answer would be, is going to be a lot less exciting than JP's. Um, there was really no aha moment ever. It was just always, that was it's something that was always part of the clinic, part of what, what we did. And I think back in the day in the seventies and eighties, when um, kind of in the early days of micro, when there weren't too many options, um, the Bunky Clinic was pretty much the place where a lot of, of patients were sent to for all types of lower extremity wounds. So when I was a fellow here, we did a lot of lower extremity um, reconstruction, and they're just kind of part of what, what we did, uh, even though you know, most of what, what we do is in the hand or, or in the upper extremity in general. So um, yeah, I think I just kind of got plugged into the system and just keep doing it. So That's wonderful. Uh, thanks for sharing those stories. Can you both speak about what your overall goal is when approaching a patient that needs lower extremity reconstruction? Yeah, this is, um, I, I think Bobak and I probably would have a very similar answer. I mean, lower extremity, I think the key is, because of its functionality, I think the key is to maintain gait. And if it has a functional gait, and I think, you know, whatever you do um, ends up in a good lower extremity uh, recon result. I think we also have to take into mind that, you know, amputation is also functional surgery. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of, uh, well, I guess the general population that doesn't really think so, but I think it's also our job, not only to reconstruct the lower extremity to walk, but also take part. And if you need to um, improve the functionality of amputation, that's our, that has been what our colleagues were doing um, all over the world. And, and maximize the remnant function, whatever the patient will be left with. So I think that's the ultimate goal of lower extremity surgery. I think I would definitely agree. And, you know, a, a big part of what we do is to, is to basically to salvage the limb. And I think um, in residency, especially in the general surgery years, we're always told, you know, a BKA can have excellent function and it can. Uh, but the question is, how many 80-year-olds do you see 
wearing a prosthesis and walking around. You just don't. Um, so a you know 20 year old would do probably just fine with a BK prosthesis. But I think if you're able to salvage that leg, it's much much more durable. The patient's going to be walking on that leg for decades and decades. So I think we've become over the last few decades much more um, aggressive uh, with regards to limb salvage. Um, and I think, um, as JP mentioned, you know, we do know, and actually JP's data shows this, that that life expectancy actually has increased um, when you're able to avoid uh, amputation of the lower extremity. That's kind of a great lead into our next question. So when we're talking about limits in which you will attempt salvage of an extremity, can you kind of speak to that? I know our overall goal is functional ambulation, but will you speak to the limits of salvage attempts? Well, I guess... You know, this is going to be a little bit different to what I would write down on a textbook as an author. <laughs> and, you know, there are some major contraindications uh, that we know in our practice, such as lack of uh, nerve, peripheral nerve, or the functionality of the peripheral nerve, the sensation. But I think the human tissue is very um, durable and has... I think a huge potential to regenerate somehow. And if possible, uh, and if it's not risking the patient's general overall condition, then I would try to salvage as much as possible. Um, I think the power of rehab and also with uh, current uh, advances in technology, especially the concept of exoskeleton, a uh, motor generated uh, braces, I think really allows us to, you know, look uh, further beyond what we're taught. So I think for me, there would be nowadays no absolute contraindication unless it's not doable. Uh, and I would salvage as much as possible and then work very closely with the rehab to regain the functionality as much as possible. I think one contraindication that I may have in regards to limb salvage is, has the patient walked before? And it doesn't make sense if the patient didn't walk before uh, to go through a eight, 12 hour surgery to, to you know, reconstruct the, the leg that he's not going to use anyway. So I think in that case, I think I, I wouldn't consider, but the rest I would probably uh, do reconstruction if it's doable and if it doesn't sacrifice the overall condition of the patient. Yeah, I think I would agree with a lot of those points. I think many of the things that we're going to say um, today and, and also many of the things that I, I say with regards to the hand um, are not necessarily textbook uh, answers and and probably not the best um, answer for in-service uh, questions. Um, but there clearly are contraindications that we're all taught, like you know sensation in the foot and so on and so forth, even though plantar sensation actually is has been shown to not necessarily be an absolute contraindication to some patients. Um, but in general, that's considered to be one. Um, I think the general health of the patient clearly is one. Um, if, to me, if the patient is healthy enough to undergo an operation and you have some kind of target, be it a, a major named vessel or a perforator of one of those vessels, um, and JP's done a lot, a lot of work on the perforator um, to perforator anastomoses, I think as long as you have that um, and the patient um, has some kind of prospect of being able to walk again, um, I think that you know we like to do everything we can to try to salvage these um, these these legs. I think 
Um, you know, most patients will, even if you, you tried and, and it didn't succeed, most patients will still appreciate the fact that you actually tried. And the upside of it, again, is you can have a patient who has a leg for decades to come um, and, um, and they're going to be able to walk on that instead of a prosthetic. This question sort of goes um, back to Dr. Hong, the first patient that you described seeing that um, sort of led to some of your interest in lower extremity trauma. Um, but what about patients with bad soft tissue degloving injuries? Can you talk a little bit about what your approach is for those patients? Do you attempt to salvage some of that degloved de skin? Um, you know, what's sort of the sensation recovery if, if it is salvageable and your general approach to those patients? Yeah, this is a great, great question. And a lot of the times we don't see these traumatized or these degloved uh, injured patients first line. They usually go to secondary uh, or well, secondary primary centers where most of the trauma of the lower extremity are actually seen by emergency um, physicians or by orthopods. And the reason why we need to get more involved in taking care of these patients primarily is that we have a deep sense to not throw away tissues, to, to salvage as much as possible. And a lot of the times, if I do see a degloved skin that's non-salvageable, then I will harvest it and I'll keep it under you know, preservation fluid for a few, few days or even a couple of weeks, and then use that skin at a later phase to do skin graft after the wound is stabilized. But a lot of the time, people just throw away that skin, just put it and, and, and hope that it will take. But of course, you have to make that clinical judgment. And then we, I think we have great tools nowadays, such as ICG, for example, that tells you whether or not it's going to be perfused and whether or not that part of the skin is going to live or not. So for me, when, it's, when I know that uh, it will not function, then we harvest it, we preserve it, and then we use it secondarily. Uh, never throw away um, so-called devitalized tissue. Second is that if it needs an amputation, then again, you go in primarily and you do fillet flaps. You could harvest a plantar flap or a dorsalis pedis flap, <clears throat> and then you could do it on the table primarily after they do an amputation or if, if it's not salvageable. And, but you still have that good remnant functional tissue uh, to work with. So I think the first thing that we have to sort of take away from the question that you just asked is salvage, uh, but also preserve and never think about throwing away um, any tissue. Uh, going back to your question, again, if it's a, a skin defect that has bone tendon or these vital structures, especially vessels that are, that are um, exposed, yes, you need to do a flap. But if it's muscle, you know, or if there's good fat tissue, and I think doing wound care with sometimes uh, with uh, or without um, uh, dermal scaffolds like Integra, I think really helps to get the job done and you could come back and do a, a skin graft. But again, for exposed arteries, that's a must. You must do a flap over it. Uh, for exposed bone or, or tendon, whenever the wound's clean, I think you have to come back and do a flap. Um, and, and the reason why I have sort of shifted from doing a lot of skin coverage with flaps to now doing skin graft is that 
We also have an amazing tool called Fat Graft. And after the skin graft, you could go back and do Fat Graft a few times and, and still the, the patient will recover with a relatively non-stiff, pliable skin with fat underneath the graft. So, you know, I think uh, doing, um, for me now, um, if skin graft is a better choice, then I don't fear that much consequence of having more scars or having stiff skin because now we also have the, a tool of fat. So, so, you know, I think you have to customize the approach to whether or not this leg or this exposure or this a wound really needs a flap versus can we do a skin graft and then come back and do a fat graft? So, so I hope I've answered your question. Just a quick comment on that. I think, um, I think I agree with JP. I think a lot of these kind of more evulsive type mechanisms um, do have significant components or areas where you just have exposed muscle. Um, and clearly those are all graftable. Um, I mean, we obviously love doing microsurgery, but I think when you have a degloving injury, um, especially if it's higher up in the leg, uh, many of those lesions are, are graftable. Um, but there's always going to be um, some segments that where you have exposed bone or let's say in a pre-tibial region where you may have some dinner periosteum and so on where you need a flap. Um, I don't have any experience um, with preserving skin in preservation fluid, uh, so I'll have to defer that um, to JP. So our next question has to do with preoperative examination. Uh, and what is your approach to evaluating the vascular status of patients who are going to receive a flap? Uh, and do you always obtain advanced imaging for vascular status in patients or just those without palpable pulses? So with regards to uh, vascular um, status, again, most of the patients whom I'm treating um, for lower extremity are trauma patients. Um, and so we um, obviously would be doing Doppler exams and, and, and uh, feeling for pulses and so on. Um, if it's a young, healthy patient with palpable pulses, small wound that needs to be covered, um, we, we may not get an angiogram, but we don't necessarily need a study. But most of the patients have pretty bad crush injuries, um, significant open wounds. And so we will go ahead and typically get an, an arteriogram. Our preference definitely is assuming the kidneys allow it, um, a formal arteriogram uh, over a CT angiogram. And I think <clears throat> in our opinion, there are a number of advantages there. I think first it shows you the kind of the, the live flow, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, uh, whereas a CT angiogram actually can be fooled um, with some collateral filling of some of the parent vessels. So I've seen plenty of CT angiograms actually show vessels are intact, but there's actually no good anterograde flow. And if you get a, a formal arteriogram, you actually can see that better. Um, and so we tend to uh, go for that. Um, but again, in a, in a young, healthy patient with a small area that didn't involve a massive crush injury, um, um, sometimes we may not get a, a vascular study. Also, what our preference, and this may be um, asked later, but in general, we prefer not to um, completely take many of the lower extremity vessels. We do a lot of endocide anastomoses, um, and so we we tend to like to preserve a lot of the um, a lot of the vessels in the leg. Yeah. So going back to your question, I mean, a lot of the times when when the patient is healthy and young, like Bob said, you know, just doing a, a quick Allen's test in trauma or using a Handel Doppler and doing an Allen's test may be uh, enough. But you also have to now take into account that almost 20% of our population have some kind of risk to microsurgery, especially being diabetic and especially having um, a prolonged hypertension. If there's any reason to think that this patient is a high risk, then I would 
always take a more advanced uh, type of diagnostic tool to evaluate the vascular status. Now, if you could have a classical uh, digital subtracted angiogram, that would be great. But that also takes a lot of time and resource, and you cannot sometimes get that in emergency settings. So you have to be satisfied with CT angio. Now, the reason why um, I'm a strong proponent of getting these advanced imaging, especially for these high-risk patients, is that sometimes you not only get the information of the, the, the area of the defect and select which recipient could be the best choice for the reconstructive options that you're having in mind, but also if you take a CT angel, what it also tells you is how is the vascularity leading to the leg? And in a lot of times in diabetic patients, you will see obstruction of the femoral artery. And sometimes you could even see the, the descending branch, which is the main pedicle of the ALT being the major collateral. So if you harvest the ALT without knowing that and take that major collateral, then you'll be jeopardizing the whole extremity. And this has been reported in a case report um, from, another, from another group. So I think it's prudent for high-risk patients to get that advanced CT angio. Uh, if young, trauma, no risks, then I think just doing a good physical exam should, be, uh, should suffice the information that you need to have. But again, if you have the luxury and the system behind you to get information, you know, I don't see uh, why not. What has also changed in our practice is because we're now shifting towards um, using a lot of ultrasound in our practice. Uh, we, have, uh, we have two ultrasound uh, devices and we just use that to map out larger uh, vessels and trace it in not only in the defect site, but in the recipient site where we want to harvest uh, the, the donor site where we want to harvest the flat. So using that also gives us good information. And sometimes we don't really need to do uh, CT angiograms uh, if you have the capability and the luxury to use ultrasound. So, um, you know, it's, it's an exciting time because we're now, you know, being able to see new modalities of uh, diagnosis. And I think even though we're plastic surgeons keeping up to what tools that potentially we might be able to use, I think will definitely make your outcome a little bit uh, better. And it would also give you a safer mind uh, knowing that you know, you know what's going on underneath the skin. Sort of to continue the conversation about um, vascular status for the patient, can you talk a little bit about deciding which vessels um, for your inflow for as your recipient vessels, if you have a preference, you know, especially in trauma, um, I know some people discuss maybe posterior system is a little bit better protected. Um, and then sort of, you already mentioned a little bit, trying to go and decide when possible versus end to end to preserve distal flow, but just sort of generally how you're making the selection, how you know you're out of the zone of injury from a technical standpoint um, when you're in the operating room. So uh, great question. And there are a lot of components to that. Um, so I think, um, again, if it's a more of a trauma type thing, then the zone of injury is something that's a very um, important. If this is more of a, let's say a diabetic ulcer, then it's not as much zone of injury as, as much as it is where the recipient vessels are. So in my practice, obviously, <clears throat> very trauma-based. So zone of injury is key. Um, with regards to 
which recipient vessels we're going to use. Um, a lot of it obviously depends on proximity to, to the wound, the lie of the parent vessels um, or the recipient vessels in relation to where the pedicle is going to be going. Um, I don't necessarily say that I have a preference over you know, the anterotibial system versus the posteriotibial system. It just depends on where the wound is, what kind of flap I'm using, and, and um, kind of where the pedicle needs to go. Um, so I, we're kind of an equal opportunity as far as wherever we plug into. We even plug into the perineal sometimes if, if that's kind of what we need to plug into. You can just take a piece of fibula off, especially if there's fracture in there, um, and just plug into that. So um, basically, we go into whatever vessel looks best. Um, as far as the veins, I think the biggest challenge in lower extremity actually isn't even the arteries. It's usually the veins. Um, especially in crush injuries, the arteriogram may look perfect, but you go in there and the veins are, the whole thing's inflamed and it just may not be as good as you might think it is. In general, we do prefer the, the deep venous system. So the vena comitantis of the AT or the PT and so on. Uh, a few reasons for this, um, it's right next to the artery. So I think from a lie standpoint, you don't have to separate the artery and the vein of the flap too much to kind of have them go in different directions. Also the deep system tends to be um, much um, lower resistance um, compared to the saphenous system. And so um, <clears throat> if you do have a good venae, um, I think in, in general, it tends to flow um, a, lo a little bit better. The saphenous can be prone to spasm. Um, and so that's another consideration. It's a, it's a perfectly fine option to use for a second vein or for a kind of a salvage type thing if you don't have good veins. Um, so that's kind of one comment that I would make about the, uh, about the veins, um, about the end to side versus end to end. I think some of it has to do with caliber of the vessels. Um, in general, if you're, um, plugging into, let's say the posterior system in an adult, most of your flaps, not all, the artery is going to be a little bit smaller than the PT. The PT is a pretty big artery. Um, and so we, we tend to prefer end to side anastomosis for a number of reasons. One of them obviously is preserve, it preserves distal flow. Um, especially in a vessel depleted leg um, or in a, um, in, a, in, a, in a patient who is already a vascular path. Um, the other thing is that from a technical standpoint, it's good for training. I think most people or most residents go through training potentially without that much endocide experience. And I think it's a really good um, skill set to have um, from large endocides um, into a really big artery like the common femoral or very small endocides like a little tiny lateral arm perforator to you know, the snuff box, for example. So I think these are things that I think technically is important to know. Um, also, I think from a flow dynamic standpoint, um, there are some potential advantages to end aside. Actually, Jim Higgins um, uh, gave us a talk back, I think it was in maybe August or so on our visiting professor series um, on the virtual stuff, which is on YouTube. And he talked about a paper that is probably out by now um, where they were looking at end aside versus end to end and showing some of the advantages of the flow in some of the endocide anastomoses. Um, the end to end tends to be a little more prone to spasms as well. And so um, if you do a longitudinal cut onto, a, onto an artery, it, it tends to you know, bleed forever. It never goes in a spasm. And that's a good thing for us uh, if we're trying to get some flow out of it. So those are just some general comments that I would make with regards to recipient vessels. Um, JP, any, anything to add? I mean, regarding the vein, nothing. I mean, you, you, you I think, uh, shared uh, essence of how to select veins. Now, when we talk about zone of injury, um, if you look at when the concept of zone of injury was actually introduced, it was introduced in the early days of microsurgery. And during that time, you know, there was a lot of debate, not only the zone of injury, but the timing of reconstruction. 
And a lot of the times uh, they were not able to reconstruct very early in the, in the first you know, two to three weeks after the skin defect has happened. Now, as the wound matures, what happens is as the granulation continues, these are basically all scars. And if you try to dissect a vessel, whether it be big or small, what happens is that you'll basically rupture the vein or the artery and it makes it very, very difficult to, to isolate. And hence the idea, ah, the zone of injury, uh, you should get out of the zone of injury. And I agree with that uh, notion. However, when you have a trauma, as Bobek said, and when you're early, when you're looking at it primarily, and as long as you see a good pulse, uh, and, 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 and able to vis visualize a nice pulse. And then when you make a small opening, see a nice pulsatile uh, flow. I think that is the most important key in this deciding whether or not that artery or vein is usable. And this has been supported by a lot of uh, uh, papers uh, dating back 20 years to Dr. Randy Sherman's paper, actually talking about this exact concept. So, for me, the zone of injury concept is not as important, but I do look at it uh, from a perspective of scars. And if I see that there's a lot of scars in that defect zone, then it just makes your life easier to go out and go to a virgin territory and, and dissect healthy arteries and veins. So, so that's the kind of thinking that I have in regards to uh, zone of injury. If it's easy, if it's doable, it doesn't matter where it is. Uh, if it's if you think it's going to be hard, just go out and find virgin territory and take a longer pedicle. That's it. Uh, regarding end to side, end to end, uh, I think Bobic mentioned that end to end has much more spasm. And the reason why this happens is when you cut, especially the arteries, the anterior tibial, posterior tibial. Um, what happens is when you cut it, you'll see that the artery it retracts. It retracts proximally, and the reason why is because the artery is always sort of has a, a tension, and when you cut it. It just retracts. And what happens is it retracts and the lumen becomes smaller. And that's what sort of, uh, sort of, you know, same thing with spasm. And then that's why you always have problems. So by not cutting end-to-end uh, -end and just making a side, that tension just remains the same. And that's why, hence the idea of, of less spasm. Um, end to side, and this is why I prefer end to side over end to end any day, unless it's a stump, it's an end vessel, like a perforator, or if the patient underwent uh, an amputation, then I think using the end vessel uh, doesn't really matter. But I would like to talk a little bit, move a step further, and also strongly advocate that as plastic surgeons, if you have the capability, we need to reconstruct the vascular flow as well. For example, if the patient only has one artery, like say posterior tibial, and he doesn't have anterior tibial, why don't we go ahead and reconstruct the anterior tibial if we can with a graft or use a flow through flap and then ultimately reconstruct the vascular flow? It's common sense that as you normalize the flow to the leg, the surrounding tissue will have better flow. The patient will have a, a better flow. He wouldn't go, he wouldn't have the chance to have ischemia further down 
after reconstruction. So I think if you have the capabilities, I think we also have to now consider uh, reconstructing not only the soft tissue. We, we already reconstruct soft tissue and bones and tendons, but now I think we should also consider uh, reconstructing uh, the artery as well. And we have data showing that um, in traumatized limb, if you reconstruct uh, the, the, major source, uh, the major source vessels, the chances of having secondary bone infection become significantly lower. So the problem of developing chronic osteomyelitis becomes significantly lower once you reconstruct uh, the, the major arteries and, 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 and sort of um, have the best flow uh, going to that defect and to the leg. So I think that's the next step for uh, reconstruct. Uh, that's the next step for in 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 regards to um, artery. And I think we should always think about how can we do it better. How can we maximize and how can we actually reach the normal as much as possible. And I think from that context, for me, it's always emphasized, or it's always try to reconstruct what is missing, uh, such as a gap of the of the flow. I want to just follow up on one thing that I, I think Lenny mentioned, the posterior um, system as far as it being more protective potentially. Um, I think that that one of the other considerations with regards to picking your recipient vessels is that you have to keep that in mind with regards to the post-operative uh, positioning. And that is particularly important with regards to the, to the veins. Um, these veins are thinner walled, they're much more compressible. So if you go into, let's say the posterior tibial uh, veins, um, and the advantage of putting the implantable Doppler, at least in our practice, we can get to that later, um, is that you can hear kind of real-time feedback. And so next time you plug into, let's say the PT vein, and you have, let's say you have implantable Doppler on that, just reach up the calf and just put some pressure on the calf muscles and you'll hear that flow go down. So if you're gonna go into the posterior tibial vessels, um, any posterior compression makes sense is gonna kind of reduce some of that flow. So you have to, you know, frog like the patient or if there's an X-fix, maybe do a kickstand so there's really no pressure on that or, or in the popliteal fossa. And so I think there are a lot of things you think about, not just intraoperatively, but also where you plugged into, at the end of the day, what we do is a mechanical operation, right? We're putting tubes together. And so any kind of compression, any kind of kinking is really important. Yeah, this is a good point. Just uh, recently we, we, we published, I mean, it's in press and PRS, and what we looked at is, since we're in the topic of um, artery, we actually looked at the difference in post-operative position of the ankle. And what we found out was that if the ankle is, uh, we, we sort of want to you know, fix the ankle in a, a neutral position because we don't want it to contract. We don't want the Achilles to contract. But what happens is if you put a neutral position, the flow of the posterior tibial actually reduces because of the tension of the, of the uh, artery itself. But when you dorsiflex, the flow actually becomes much more higher, the flow velocity. So what we do, understanding that, and it's the, it's, it, it's the exact opposite for the uh, dorsalis pedis. So in order to maintain high flow during post-op, we actually now dorsiflex, if we use the posterior tibial, uh, we actually plantar flex the leg to maximize the go to the flat for the first three days and then gradually change back to neutral position. So there are a lot of tricks and I think we need to understand the dynamics of the flow. And I think, you know, having bits of these kind of knowledges from different paper is going to also help you um, have a better result. 
I always um, stress to my residents that microsurgery itself is only 5% of reconstruction. It's the preoperative planning and it's the postoperative understanding that actually, I think it's more significant in having a better result. A lot of the times you'll see that there's no, almost no technical errors if you are careful and if you go through the steps, if you did the animal training, the technical error is rarely there. It's about understanding the post-operative and the pre-operative sequence of the whole reconstruction. Thank you. Um, just to piggyback a little bit off of what you're talking about, can you talk a little bit about your approach to patients who do have venous hypertension, um, ways to get around that? And then do you ever use retrograde venous flow in the lower extremity? I know we use that a lot for breast reconstruction and other trunk reconstruction, but can you talk a little bit about that as well? This is really, really a good question. For patients that have previous trauma uh, or um, have, has had known history of DVTs, we always like to take CT angiograms. And if there is a high pressure vein, we want to know, and then we want to fix the problem first uh, prior to reconstruction. Uh, because we've seen cases where we know we did everything, you know, perfectly. But when we open the vein, the, the backflow of the vein is crazy. It's crazy. It's just, it's almost like, it's not pulsating, but it's almost, when I exaggerate a little, it's almost looks like an artery. And we know that in these kind of cases, there, you know, this patient probably has DVT or has some pathology leading to high venous pressure. And when we do this, we basically, the flap doesn't go well. You know, we leach it for a long period of time. Uh, we don't think the flap's draining well enough to, to, to the vein. We end up leaching. Uh, we end up admitting the patient longer. Uh, we also, you know, end up, you know, not mobilizing the patient because the patient has to have the leg up for a prolonged period of time. So what we're doing now is um, we're taking the distal part of the artery and we're actually making an AV loop to the vein. So we are forcing the venous outflow by increasing um, the venous pressure within the flap. And we've had pretty good results with this. Uh, and, uh, and so if the vein pressure is high, just make it higher. Uh, uh, that has been basically our thinking to combat the high pressure uh, vein uh, in patients. So that has been sort of our approach. Regarding your question to retrograde venous flow, if the defect is distal to the ankle, we could consider because we know that distal to the ankle, the vein does not have valves. Uh, but if it's proximal to the ankle, uh, we wouldn't necessarily do a retrograde. I know that doing retrograde because they're connecting uh, veins between the deep veins, accompanying veins, theoretically should work, but that would probably be our last resort. I would prefer to do vein graft and do the regular uh, flow than doing a retrograde uh, venous uh, outflow. So. 
if there's no veins, and it, even if I do a, a bypass graft, uh, a vein graft to hook up a, a vein, if that doesn't work, then I think we may consider doing um, uh, a retrograde vein anastomosis. I think I would agree with a lot of those comments. I think with regards to the retrograde vein, um, I've never done that. I think for me, it would be kind of a <clears throat> kind of a last kind of a salvage type thing, but uh, we've never had to do that. Um, with regards to high pressure venous system, you definitely will encounter that. I think some instances would be, for example, someone who has had, let's say, um, you know, an axillary node dissection with radiation, you can have some scar tissue formation and the compression of the veins and where the veins necessarily look okay, but if you cut it, there's actually almost pulsatile flow the other way. Um, and you'll find the same in lower extremities too, be it, be it from a mechanical blockers like a DVT or some other external um, uh, block like a scar, scar tissue. I think what JP mentioned is is definitely um, a very nice way of, of overcoming that. You can also do that um, to salvage a flap, and we have done that quite a few times in a, in a system where um, we just weren't getting enough good venous drainage um, despite doing TPA and so on, where we kind of arterialized the um, the vein of the flap so that to keep it open um, while things kind of open up a little bit. So I think those are all good options, and that's kind of, um, uh, I think, the kind of next level, if you will, as far as um, trying to get flaps to survive. What are your thoughts on doing vein, you know, on the side? So hooking up the flap vein to a side of a, a, a recipient vein. So you mean in kind of an end the side of the yeah. flap to a recipient? Yeah, we, we have done that when the recipient's been a really large vein, like sometimes when we have plug into the femoral vein sometimes if there's nothing else around there. Um, and when there is a massive mismatch, I think um, endocyte works perfectly fine. Um, and the technique is no different than an endocyte artery. It just so happens that the indications for it, I think, in my opinion, are just a lot um, less frequent or less common than an endocyte for an artery. I, I, you know, when there's only one vein and if you have two venous outflows, then we will do two, you know, on the side. And, and the reason why I'm asking is, you know, how would it different? How would it differ hemodynamically if we were to do end-to-end compared to side-to-end anastomosis? So this would be something I think for you, uh, the residents at Duke, to do some animal research and and do some flow uh, dynamic study, and hopefully come back um, with an answer. I'll be looking forward to hearing this at the next Duke lab course. <laughs> Now, JP, I have a question for you. Um, you mentioned in instances of, of a lot of venous kind of back pressure, how you arterialize the vein to increase the flow. Um, do you ever go back later and kind of clip that once everything's healed? To, or, or are you worried at all about having kind of increased venous return because you've created this AV fistula? Um, is that even a concern if it's a small vessel? Yeah, that's a very good question. And when we do follow up, we listen to the Doppler and you hear this huge AV loop on the flap. <laughs> but I mean, unless the patient complains, unless the patient say, oh, my flap is pulsing, uh, we've had rarely had the, had the need to go back and clip it. Um, and we also do this as a salvage procedure like you as well. Um, but, you know, I don't think it really bothers the patient, especially in low extremity. But I had cases in the head and neck that I had to go and clip because they say, oh, my neck is pulsating like crazy. And I said, okay, let's go clip it. But I think it's a less of a problem for low extremity. I feel like as a resident, our minds are just blown. By I know we've learned all of your secrets now. Yeah. Well, I just want to, yeah. 
I just wanted to switch gears a little bit and talk about the timing of reconstruction. I know we're taught that it's ideal to have soft tissue coverage within 72 hours. But can you speak a little bit about whether you think that makes a big difference and also how you work with your orthopedic surgery colleagues to facilitate serial debridements? Yeah. So um, this is a, actually a very good question. It's a question that I've, that I've kind of discussed with many people, and it's going to be a, almost blasphemous for me to say this as the Godina Fellow, a former Godina Fellow, because, um, you know, one of Godina's contributions was this whole, you know, kind of fix and flap thing within three days and showing improved outcomes. Um, again, going on a limb here, but uh, I don't think that that really applies today. Um, I think that today almost all of our lower extremity salvage cases are beyond um, 72 hours. And that's just because, you know, we're not a trauma center. So patients don't come to us primarily. We'd be lucky if we get to covering an open defects, you know, within a week. Um, however, we do have other modalities that we're, that we're doing. Um, <clears throat> obviously the VAC has changed things quite a bit. We prefer not to back directly over bone. Um, and we actually do a lot of antibiotic beads um, and I ban over it kind of creating kind of a sterile environment. Um, so I think that the traditional concept of having to fix things within 72 hours, um, in our experience, actually no longer applies today. Again, it's kind of blasphemous for me to say this um, as, as a former Godina fellow, but I think in, in some cases, actually, it's, it's helpful um, if it's a severe kind of crush avulsion to allow the wound to demarcate. Um, I think if, if you are um, forced to fix something early, then you have to do a really, really radical debridement to make sure you kind of um, excise everything that is, is even marginal that could potentially re recover just to make sure that you can, they don't leave anything dead behind. Sorry, I missed the question, but I, I'm assuming that the question was, do you have to do it within three days? Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, basically same. <clears throat> I mean, it goes, again, challenging the, the, the concept of zone of injury. <clears throat> if you are able to have I mean, earlier, the better, of course. I mean, the tissue are just softer and better. Um, and the more stiff it is, the more difficult it is to debride. But again, I think when you're seeing the, when you're reconstructing at a primary uh, phase or acute phase, then, you know, you have to be very comfortable doing a complete debridement. I think that's one of the keys. And the way we do it, we just ICG it. Uh, is there even a word, ICG it? Well, anyway. ICG or I don't know. We use, it's a verb. Yeah. We use the ICG to basically um, you know, understand what, you know, part of the flap has vascularity or not. And then uh, we try to debride as much as possible into a flap. But again, um, these primary cases, I mean, these acute cases are very, it's not common here as well. So we end up doing um, subacute or even chronic phase uh, extremity. But I would I would uh, agree with Babek saying if the case comes early, I mean, it's easier for us, it's easier for um, the patient. Uh, but, you know, we, we, we do what we get. Uh, and, and that's, that's that. Do you do radical debridement or serial debridement? Do you have a preference? This is also a very good question. Uh, um, and it really depends on the wound. Um, and I try to minimize the numbers of debridement as much as possible. But even if I debride, and if I still see some pus pockets, you know, some, some oozing, 
um, then I would do it again. But at the end of the debridement, if I'm comfortable and if I don't see any more uh, discharge, and if I know that I did a relatively good job, then I'll just go ahead and, and, and do the reconstruction. So, so I think this is really about a clinical judgment. Uh, and it just makes, I mean, if you're not comfortable with the debridement you did, then it doesn't, it doesn't hurt to wait a few days and do another debridement and then go ahead, uh, look at the CRP uh, and make sure that everything is, is, is normal. Uh, but you know, I, I sort of rely a little bit more on the clinical judgment on my on my uh, uh, perspective, and also, um, Bobek probably will feel the same way on the availability of the operating theater. So it's not really a luxury for me to do five, six debridements and then schedule uh, a a non-elective case uh, for free flow. So I think I rely, this is one of the reasons I rely heavily on the clinical judgment. All I think, right. um, <clears throat> sorry, my, so my um, kind of answer to that question would, would be, a lot of that depends kind of on the, on the upper versus lower extremity. I think on the, on the upper extremity, I tend to do a lot more serial debridements, um, especially if it means, you know, not having to take an important structure. I think in the, in the upper extremity, you, you have to be cognizant of a lot more structures than in the lower extremity. Um, in the lower extremity, there are certain things that are important. Obviously, coverage is, is key and obviously skeletal structure. Those two are the most important things. Um, in the hand and the upper extremity, there are a lot more things to think about, obviously. Um, in the lower extremity, I think we tend to not have to do too many serial agreements. We just kind of take all the soft tissue that we think is, is dead and, and, and cover it. So I think I, I would agree with JP in that it's not a, um, you, you can use the, the spy, um, uh, or you can ICG it, as he, as he put it, um, and kind of able to get an idea of what the soft tissue defect is fairly quickly. One thing I was going to mention <clears throat> as a kind of an expansion on, on Hannah's question with regards to timing, I think the more important part of that actually is the hardware, right? So what kind of hardware there is, what's exposed, um, you know, and I think the timing really, from our standpoint, from a coverage standpoint, a lot of it has to do with that. And if once you have a biofilm on your plates or your exposed screws or whatever, no amount of washing out that hardware or even putting the patient on IV antibiotics is really going to get rid of that biofilm. And so the key is to avoid that biofilm. And so one way to avoid it is to do a flap within a couple of days. But the other way is to keep the wound as sterile as possible. And you can do that with, with an antibiotic bead pouch, pouch creation along with IVAN and so on and so forth. So there are ways to, to kind of extend that time window. Having said that, I think most orthopedic surgeons tend to be somewhat gun shy about removing hardware. They just don't want to do it. Um, and I think there are a number of reasons for that. I think one of them is obviously it's, if you have good fixation, it's really hard to convince yourself that you want to get rid of that fixation and put something else on. The other one I think is that we are unfortunately kind of going from a trend standpoint, uh, much more toward um, very, like fewer surgeons being comfortable with complex external fixation techniques. And by that, I mean Elizabeth frames and Taylor spatial frames. So um, basically more orthopedic surgeons tend to be comfortable with, you know, IM nailing and plating and that kind of st stuff. But if it's a complicated wound, um, basically very few of them want to take out an IM nail and put on a very co complicated frame. We're fortunate enough to actually um, have experts. Uh, Dr. David Lohenberg is actually our main orthopedic surgeon with whom we work, um, and he is a master at that stuff. So for us, if there's anything exposed, that thing's coming out. Um, so the timing issue is 
not as much of an option. And I think that's one thing I forgot to mention in my first answer um, was that, oh yeah, we get these, you know, two, three weeks out sometimes, but we also have the orthopedic expertise to be able to say, you know what, we're going to take out the hardware, we're going to debride the bone, which is also another pitfall is the bone is almost always under debrided. Um, and the fear is that if you debride too much, then you no longer have skeletal kind of stability and, and you won't be able to put in a nail or a, or a plate on, but if you're comfortable with doing frames and so on, that's not really an issue. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, orthopedic partnership, understanding what the plastic surgeon's needs are, understanding what the orthopod's needs are, are I think are critical. And hence the concept of orthoplastic approach, as Dr. Levin mentioned, uh, we just have to understand what their needs are to actually have the ultimate best result. I just want to quickly add one thing. Um, I, one thing that sort of eases my mind in regards to the debridement is that we always take post-debridement culture, post-debridement tissue samples, and then especially the bone. Uh, and then when that comes back after the reconstruction, if that's positive, then we do six weeks. And if that's negative, then we only do two weeks. So again, you know, that's one way to support, you know, a way to back up, you know, uh, the part that you probably didn't get a full debridement. But I think once you have a good cl clinical judgment, I think the rest could be overcome with use of uh, proper um, antibiotics. Um, I know we're out of time. I do. Do you have time for one or two more questions? If not, you can totally hop off. I'm going to have to go and I'm going to let Bobek uh, finish the podcast. Well, well, anyway, thank it's you good. so much, Dr. Hong, for joining us. We really appreciate your time and um, expertise. Well, thank you. Thank guys. you so much. It's so much fun yeah. seeing you all. And hopefully we'll be able to see in person and get yes. some uh, whiskey bombs. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Bye. Thank you. Take care. So just to transition a little bit to post-operative care for these patients, you mentioned, or at least we've um, all sort of discussed some positioning um, post-operatively for these patients that you might take into account based on um, what your inflow was for your flat. But can you speak a little bit just more generally about you know, bed rest versus um, leaving bed. I know people talk about sort of the dangle protocol for when they allow the limb to be dependent, what you do in terms of wrapping the leg for compression or edema control, um, and generally when you would allow a patient to bear weight if from an orthopedic standpoint they were able to do so. Right. So I'll take the last part first, the, the weight-bearing standpoint. I think a lot of that is basically just completely dependent on um, uh, kind of the, the orthopedic component, right? So we would obviously talk to our orthopedic surgeon as far as when they feel that that weight-bearing is, is allowed. Um, and one advantage is going back to the frames, the, with the Elizabeth frame, is that the patient can bear weight, um, even if there's a bone gap. Uh, so that's one thing to talk about there. With regards to post-op, um, obviously positioning is important, as you mentioned, um, try to trying to avoid compression of the, the veins for the venous outflow. With regards to um, dangling protocol, you know, the traditional dangling protocols when I was a resident, which I'm not going to say how long ago that was, but it was a while ago, um, was roughly about three weeks. I mean, it was fairly conservative. And so we would basically have the patients with strict elevation of three weeks. And then at that point, begin to dangle with ace wrapping and, and increase it every single day. 
Um, I think that most groups have become much more aggressive with that. Um, and actually, I think JP was the one who published this, or at least was talking about it, where they dangle it, you know, within a week, um, just within a few days, they just wrap the ACE wrap and have the patient dangle. Uh, we're not quite that aggressive. I think we, you know, do it sometime between 10 to 14 days or so. Um, and the key with that is, is, um, is basically a good ACE wrapping where you basically make sure that, that the flap itself is nicely compressed. Um, um, and then the patient dangles, you know, a few minutes a day and they increase it per our protocol. Um, I don't have the entire protocol memorized, I have to admit, um, but we usually kind of start between 10 or 14 days or so. And even that is probably more conservative than most. We just feel that there's very little downside to doing that. So it's not like the upside is that much greater by moving it up by, by a week or so. A couple of quick questions we had just to finish up. Um, what do you think are some of the most important unanswered questions in lower extremity trauma? And then finally, what advice would you give students or residents who are interested in uh, lower extremity reconstruction? It's a great question. I think the uh, kind of unsolved uh, kind of problems in lower extremity, I think um, that's a tough one because we've made a lot of advances um, with regards to not just different flaps, but also um, different ways of using recipient vessels from be it the named vessels to perforators, such as um, the work that JP has done. Um, I think some of the things that are beginning to potentially change in, as far as a paradigm shift is um, some of the traditional contraindications to limb salvage. Um, I think we're still kind of um, hearing all these things about how a BK is just fine. Um, I think we, there are more and more studies coming out that show that the longevity of a salvaged limb is certainly superior um, and more cost-effective. Um, so there's more cost up front, but there's no question. There's actually a number of studies to show that the that the money spent on limb salvage is actually much worth it in the long run um, compared to a, pro a pro prosthetic. So I think more work on on that would be great. I think the other thing that is um, was traditionally a, a contradiction, and I, and I mentioned this before, was um, uh, innervation um, and making sure that patient has really good plantar sensation. There are actually some, there's some work being done around the world that actually shows that that may not necessarily be the case for everybody. Um, and so there are instances of, of patients who are able to, let's say they have you know, good dorsal sensation, for example, um, there is enough um, kind of collateral um, sprouting, if you will, where there is enough sensation on certain parts of the foot where patient potentially could benefit from that. Um, so I think that's kind of how it answer the first part of that. With regards to residents and fellows who are interested in lower extremity reconstruction, I think that um, it's easy to go through residency and just kind of decide, you know, I just want to do this one thing and become really good at it. And I think in some ways it's nice to focus, but I think the the interesting thing about lower extremity is that it truly is a, a multidisciplinary thing. You really need to, to have a good relationship with orthopedic surgery and actually understand what they do, much like they have to understand what you do. And I think the good orthoplastic centers are the ones where there is a good collaboration between those two. The other thing is that I think it's really important, and I tell um, all of our residents and fellows this, um, many people are graduating residency only knowing a couple of flaps nowadays. You know, it's like all you do is, you know, let's say ALTs and deeps and that kind of stuff. But there are many, many other flaps that are very useful um, that for some reason have kind of fallen out of favor. Uh, muscle flaps are some of these flaps. You know, we still prefer muscle flaps for lower extremity. Um, we still do plenty of skin flaps for lower extremity, but I think in general, um, there's certainly a place for muscle flaps. And, and so we do latissimus, lateratus, partial lats, um, you know, partial rectus, all these kind of more esoteric type, um, type flaps that we take. 
but I think being able to do many types of flaps um, will kind of be able to help you depending on what kind of defect you have. And the other thing is also um, becoming very comfortable with just really difficult anastomoses deep in a hole, um, be it end to end, be it end to side. If you're plugging into an anterior tibial artery um, in, a, in a high BMI patient or a really muscular patient in the proximal third of the leg, that's not easy to do. Um, especially if you're around a frame or something like that. Um, same with the PT. I mean, you have to release some of the soleus off of the tibia to again, get to the proximal t uh, PT. And so technically, these are not easy anastomoses. Um, so I think you need to really challenge yourself to, to do micro beyond superficial things that are like right on the surface, right? Um, and I think that's one thing. If you're going to be a lower extremity salvage person, you need to be really comfortable with that stuff. Those are great answers. Thank you. You taking a dig at my hand surgery pursuit? Hey, I'm a hand surgeon myself. <laughs> no, it's it's you know it's funny because I think that um, micro is actually much easier in the hand. Um, well, coverage, if you will, right? So let's say you got a big forearm defect, you got to cover that. Um, it's easier in the hand from a technical standpoint because vessel exposure is usually easier. It's not quite as deep. Um, and you're operating on the surface, you got a tourniquet on there, it's kind of comfortable, you're sitting down, all this kind of stuff. But there are a lot of other things you need to consider with hand stuff, right? So um, hand is much more than coverage. If you're just looking for coverage of a hand, you've already missed the boat. Um, there are so many other things, joint positioning, fixation techniques, tendons, nerves, all these things you got to consider if you're going to actually go for function down the road for five years from now, not just coverage today. Um, with the lower extremity, the challenges are a little bit different. The challenges tend to be orthopedic, they, they tend to be recipient vessels, adequacy of the arteries and the veins, uh, but less so um, functional considerations such as, you know, tendons and, and, and nerve reconstructions and things that are, or joints, things that are much more um, uh, applicable in the dorsum of the hand, for example, around the wrist or that kind of stuff. So, you know, it's, uh, I think it's a zero-sum game. I think they're all difficult in their own way. Um, but I think the micro part of the upper extremity tends to be a little bit easier. Also, vasculopathy just doesn't affect the upper extremity as much. Um, even though it can, uh, you tend to get a lot more than the lower extremity. It's interesting because I think as residents, we don't get a lot of recipient vessel harvest experience, you know, because we're doing perforator dissection or um, the actual technical part of the anastomosis. But I feel like that's, you know, the hardest part of the case. And so, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, when did... I, you, you did your residency at Stanford. When did you start? I feel like that has to be like, you know, what you're best at is recipient harvest. When did you really learn how to do that? I would say it wasn't until fellowship that I've started to become really comfortable with this. I mean, not until actually after that, but, but I think in fellowship, I was doing a lot more of that. And I think um, you definitely bring up a good point because at some point getting a perforator out, I mean, you've, how many do you need to get out to be comfortable getting perforators out, right? But I think getting recipient vessels out, especially in the lower extremity, that's really where the difficulty is, is finding, you know, you're operating almost sometimes behind a tibia, you know, trying to get to the PT and, um, and everything's inflamed and you're trying to, you know, identify the veins and trying to dissect them without getting, getting into them. That's, that's not easy to do. Um, and so I think um, if you do have a chance to say, you know what, maybe on this case, can I come and expose the vessels with you or get the vessels out of my own or something? Um, I think that ends up being, to me, um, a much more important part of the case. Because let's say, you know, um, 
it, you only have you know maybe one or two chances at, at getting the best the vessel the recipient vessel selection right but you have a lot of a lot of flap options right so um uh, so i think that's definitely a challenge and i think there's a there's a really good textbook it's an atlas of of microvascular surgery is what it's called by bob strouch um and um this was a book that i used in fellowship um that i thought was fantastic because for every section let's say it's the lower extremity there is an entire like chapter on recipient vessel exposures so exposing the popliteal from from a lateral approach above the knee i mean stuff that you probably wouldn't be doing but it has step-by-step -step atlas on how to expose everything from let's say the femoral down to the dorsalis pedis um, exposures of you know vessels in the head neck upper extremity thorax all that kind of stuff um, so i think uh if you if it's still in press i, I hope it is because it is a really good book um, and actually wasn't even that expensive when i bought it so hopefully it's still the case so you're saying 130 dollars Oh, that's there the one left on Amazon currently. <laughs> ah, there you go. It's Zen's next edition really needs to book. include that. Is that what you're saying? What's that? Zen's next edition needs to include the recipient vessel harvest. If it doesn't, it, it's a really good, because I think, you know, there are a lot of textbooks on how to harvest these flaps, right? Okay, well, you've harvested the flap, now what? I mean, the, the big part of that is getting the vessels down. You know what I mean? And in the upper extremity, it's not that complicated. Things are, like I said, I mean, fairly straightforward to expose. And the lower extremity much more co complicated um, and technically demanding. And I, I think that's why that Strouch book was really helpful for me. Well, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you so much, Dr. Safi. I appreciate it. Yeah. This is going to be a great podcast. I'm already super excited. Uh, it's going to be fun. awesome. So thank you again for. And you promised to post it on the microsurgery thing on Facebook. Don't forget. <laughs> yeah. Yes, we'll definitely post it once it's up. And thanks again for inviting me. It's an honor to be part of it. And uh, let's do it again. Let's talk okay. to hands next time. Yeah. Okay. Well, right. April. Okay, sounds good. All right, thanks. Okay, Bye. Bye. As a plastic surgeon with a unique vision for each patient, the more options you have at your fingertips, the better. Natrell is one of the portfolios available to you. To learn more, visit natrellsurgeon.com.